little technological matter. Isn't it wonderful to have a husband like mine? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, he's mine. <laughs> okay. As we were singing, there were so many beautiful words, but one that struck me was the God of the hills is the God of the valleys. And, you know, we're talking about the valley of the Nile, and that was a pretty dark place, hundreds of years of slavery. And in that dark place, God did an amazing, amazing thing, and that's what we're talking about today. I'd call it one of the greatest events of history, certainly, maybe arguably the greatest event other than the coming of Jesus, Son of God, to our earth. It's an event that's been described and referenced hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's in the Torah, it's repeated in the history books, it's sung about many times in the Psalms, it's referenced, I don't know how many times, in the prophetic books. And then, of course, once you come to the the New Testament, the whole thing makes sense because you realize it was all a prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus came to do. So it's a pivotal moment in faith history, and specifically the story of the family of Abraham. Now, there was a, uh, an amazing thing that happened to Abraham. Many amazing things happened to this man of faith, this man of God. And we're going to just look at a prophecy. Uh, we don't always think of him as a prophet. We just think of him as a man of faith, but actually he was very prophetic. Some of his dreams, as with um, Joseph and Daniel and others and the second Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, um, were given in, in dreams and in visions and at night time. So we're just going to ask Graham to read Genesis 15, which was one of these early prophecies. Uh, from Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Now, as, as James was telling us a few weeks ago, the slavery uh, that was foretold by the Lord to Abram was so cruel, so devastating, so oppressive that the children were, of Israel were profoundly disheartened to the point they could hardly even receive a message of hope. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You just feel so down, you can't even receive hope. I hope today, if you have that experience, that you'll come for prayer and it'll be lifted off you because it's it's a crushing experience. Well, the Lord had prepared a special person, a descendant of this wonderful Abram. In fact, he, he, um, he selected a whole family. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there's a whole family involved here. Um, there was his sister, Miriam, who sheltered him in the river. There was his mother, Jochebed, who had made that beautiful ark for him to be safe and waterproof as he was there, protected from horrible things like crocodiles or whatever. And... Uh, And then, of course, there was his own brother, his big brother, who God sent to support him and help him. 
What kind of man would it take to confront the Pharaoh of Egypt? Remember, this was the greatest superpower for hundreds and thousands of years. It certainly beats anything that we've seen in our time when empires are lucky to last 100 years. Um, this one lasted for thousands of years, economically, politically, incredibly powerful. And as well as that, it was backed by strong spiritual power. Sadly, the spiritual power was, was a dark power, dark power of sorcery. And um, a lot of the wealth that they had was given through the work of slaves, such as the Hebrew slaves. So, not surprisingly, uh, the children of Israel were feeling very depressed. They'd been in slavery now for 400 years. It's a long time. I was thinking, from now, if we look back 400 years, do you realize 62021? That was the time that the Mayflower landed in America. Uh, what ha else happened about that time? I think there was something else that was significant at that time. Um, doesn't come to my mind, but you can probably think... Oh, I know, um, Shakespeare had been dead about five years then, so that gives you an idea. So here they are, 400 years of slavery, and coming up against a strong superpower, and as we have been hearing last week specifically from, from James, it was spiritual warfare because it was occult power versus the power of the Lord. Okay, first of all, let's think for a moment, what kind of person could possibly come and stand against that? What kind of, what's the job description, if you like, uh, that would be um, required? Any thoughts? Open to suggestions. Specifically remembering the spiritual warfare aspect. Yes, indeed, because by then he'd been 40 years out of Egypt, living a free life. Yeah. yeah. Helping his father-in-law with the sheep. Any other thoughts? Yeah. A person of strong faith. Yeah. Well, the three that I came up with, not saying these are better or worse, but just the three that, that came to my mind were, first of all, it had to be a man of faith. Because in spiritual warfare, if you don't have faith, there's no way you can even start. And courage. Um very brave thing to do is to confront someone of this power and authority and the thing that strikes me about him he was so persevering he was so patient and persevering over and over and over how many times did he go to the court well we know there were 10 plagues but he actually went a few times before that over and over again he had to go so the bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god and we know from earlier that Moses was a man who'd heard the audible voice of God and he kept hearing the voice of God and it was with the voice of God that he, he spoke. Secondly, courage. And this was a new quality. He was not a brave man when he was young, was he? Remember? He, uh, he made one attempt to rescue the children uh, of Israel and um, somebody mocked him and that was enough to send him off for 40, 40 years in the desert. He was not naturally brave, so that can reassure some of us. This was not the, the, his default position. Initially, he had been a, a very, very frightened man, but the Lord gave him courage to actually go back to Egypt, which is really confronting the place of fear and failure, back to Egypt, face the Pharaoh and that whole team of magicians and sorcerers. And then the perseverance to keep on, keeping on, day after day, day after day. Every time that he was told no, 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 he kept going back again. Well, I then looked at the book of... No, it's before that. Okay, this is the one. Hebrews 11. The roll call of honor. 
I love this chapter. I think many of us do. It really sums up the life of faith of so many of the great heroes of the Old Testament. And I was so, so excited to read that in Hebrews 11:27 it says, By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered. Oh, those are the three qualities I've just been thinking. Faith, courage, and perseverance. He persevered as one who sees the invisible. Now, right at the beginning of this time, James was praying for seeing the invisible. And I just pray that there will be people here who will see the invisible. You know, we are so, we have a very visual culture. We have TV and computers. We have smartphones. We see so much. We have a very natural and beautiful landscape. We can get very preoccupied. Eye candy. It's a big thing in our society. People who look beautiful, dress beautiful. It's all very, very appealing to our our, um, eyes. But how about the invisible? How about focusing on seeing what is invisible? This was what gave Moses the faith to go into that incredibly dangerous situation. Um, And so he confronted Pharaoh. Now, I've already said it was a family endeavor. And I love the fact that this one who as a baby had faced the genocide of the Hebrew people survived thanks to his family, very specifically his family. And now, because he's feeling nervous and feeling like he's lost the power of speaking well, maybe lingual problems, I don't know. But um, God says your big brother can go with you. So there, James, Nick can help you. Um, And he actually served as his spokesman. So it's sometimes so good to have somebody beside us. It doesn't have to be an earthly brother. It can be a, a brother in the faith. It can be. But God understands our needs. And quite often we need somebody alongside us. And at the end of the service, some of you may want prayer. And it will be helpful to get somebody alongside. You know, we do pray alone. But there's, I, I don't know about you, but I find great power and encouragement from meeting at the front and praying with other people. That's, that's, that's how he made us. Next thing about him is that he had spiritual authority. Now, I think yesterday Marilyn was talking to us women about the fact we are given authority and we need to use that authority. Now, what gave Moses his authority? He had a direct personal relationship with God. That's the first requirement, isn't it? In fact, it was an intimate relationship of friendship. You know, when we go to meet somebody, the most important and the first thing is to find out their name, right? Right? Hello, my name is so-and-so, what's your name? That's where we start with the relationship. And that was exactly what happened between God and Moses. He was given the personal name of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the pre-existent one. I'm the one who's with you today, and I'll be with you forever. I am from everlasting to everlasting, Yahweh. Amazing, amazing revelation of God. Secondly, he was an eyewitness, Now, there's a lot in the New Testament about the importance of being an eyewitness, and it's important in our courts, our law courts today. Who has authority? A person who's an eyewitness. No use saying, oh, well, somebody told me last week, I think it was somebody in my office mentioned that they'd seen a stabbing down in Waterloo or something. That's not going to have any authority in a court of law. You have to be an eyewitness. And Moses was an eyewitness. He saw God's power. He saw the burning bush. He saw the uh, snake, the rod turning into a snake. He saw his hand becoming leprous and then being healed. Okay, so he had that authority through being an eyewitness. And thirdly, he had the prophetic words given to him by God. Now, you have to listen for words, and you have to allow your own 
soul and spirit and mind to be silent to hear God's words. And Moses, I'm sure he'd learned a lot about listening and silence being in a desert. He was a man who heard God speak. So every time he spoke in the court, he didn't ever speak on his own authority. Every time he said, the Lord has said, God has spoken, God is commanding, he spoke prophetically. He spoke the words from the Lord. And as a result, those words were all fulfilled. And all these plagues uh, happened, and all of these plagues were ways in which the Egyptians were being given another chance and another opportunity to repent and to turn to God and to allow the people to be set free. But each time he'd come this far and then draw back, draw back, say, yes, 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 you can let them go. Oh, no, 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 I need them. Yes, you can let them go. Oh, whoops, but we've got another pyramid to build. Oh, no. Uh, yes, you can let them go. Oh, no, there's that road there. We need, we need slaves for that. Oh, no. And so he went to and fro, to and fro, to and fro. Next thing about Moses, he was a great intercessor. Now, I've always known Moses was a great intercessor because of that amazing passage where he intercedes for his people. But I, it only just dawned on me that as I was reading these chapters that he actually interceded for Pharaoh over and over and over again. He interceded for Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And over and over again, the Lord answered his prayer. The waters of the Nile, which had been bloody, became normal again. The lice that were there disappeared. The gnats disappeared and so on. Over and over again, God was merciful as a result of Moses interceding for the people. Every time, instead of responding with gratitude and with thanksgiving, the moment the problem was gone, no, I'm not going to let your slaves go. No, I need them. How human is that? Just search your own heart. Many realize that God answers prayer, get somebody else to intercede, and they're so glad that their prayer is answered and they get the job and they get the whatever else is needed. But does it lead to gratitude? Does it lead to praise? Does it lead to worship? Not always. Sometimes people convince themselves, well, actually, that was just a coincidence. Actually, I would have got the job anyway. I'm pretty good anyway, and so on and so on. And in the case of Pharaoh, it just made his heart harder. So in the end, from Pharaoh hardening his heart, in the, at the end, it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's a scary thought. You know, there comes a time when you over and over and over again resist God to the point where he says, you keep saying, no, I want my will, my will, my will, not your will. And in the end, God will say, well, have your will then. Have your will then. And that's not something that I hope any of us will experience. Okay, the, the ninth plague, a terrible plague, terrifying darkness on the land of Egypt, very specifically a sign uh, against the, their, their son, sun god. And here for the first time, the Lord gave a command for the Hebrew people. Up, now, up to now, all the command was for Pharaoh, let the people go. This command is for the people. They're to go to their neighbors and ask for gold and silver and clothes and jewels, which is embarrassing, scary. I don't know about you, but I hate asking for stuff, and I think many of us do. But they were obedient. See the difference? They were obedient. By now, they had seen enough plagues to realize that God had the power, God had the authority, and God was to be obeyed. And it says in verse 3 
of chapter 11 was the Lord who made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards them. And this, of course, is a fulfillment of what we read a long time back of the um, prophecy given to Abram, that they would go out with many possessions. Afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. It has been said, it's a thought, there's any evidence for it, has been said that probably all the wealth that they took would be um, equivalent to 400 years of wages that they didn't get. And I think that'd be pretty true, actually. Yeah. So, a supernatural battle. And surely in that ninth plague, when darkness was on the earth for three days, it must have been absolutely terrifying after all these other plagues. And no doubt the word had spread through the, the whole of the land, that this mysterious, this invisible, this unbelievably powerful God of Israel had sent his servant Moses, the prophet, to demand that the slaves be set free. And maybe they thought by giving gold and silver, they were somehow appeasing this God, very likely. And I wonder if some of them had a sense of guilt, that they were under God's judgment, that in fact they had been incredibly cruel just thought this was interesting, just a little side note, but um, some of us love watching those history programs about the Nile and Exodus and so forth, and they have been found um, over the last years in the, the Valley of the Tombs and in the tombs of the kings and nobles, not once but many times this particular inscription, I am he, and sometimes it says I'm the king, I'm he who will be judged by him whose name is hidden on the night of the slaying of the firstborn. And it's interesting that that one dates from 2700 to 2100 BC, but they actually occur over quite a long period of time. I got that information, by the way, from a Jewish professor, Rendsburg. Um, he's written a number of books on the Torah. And the words night and slaying and firstborn are, of course, all found in the biblical text in chapter 12, verse 29, while the word judgment appeared even in Genesis 15 uh, to, to Abraham. Now, it's just, a, just I wonder, was this Egyptian inscription based on prophetic warning given to the people of Egypt, maybe even by Joseph? Because Joseph was a dreamer, Joseph was a prophet. Um, who knows? But somehow, somewhere along the line, this was common knowledge. Or did this happen after this terrible night, a recognition that this was judgment night, the hidden God, the unnamed God? And of course, he was hidden to them, but he was revealed to Moses and increasingly revealed to the Hebrew nation as a whole, the God of God over life and death and the great judge of the earth. So what happened on judgment night? I'm going to ask Joshua to read this section. As on the board thing, it's uh, from Exodus 12, starting at verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man will take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take from either the sheep or the goats. Take care of, take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel will slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames of the house where they will eat the lambs. At the same, the same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Uh, skipping to verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Uh, Going to verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the tops and both the sides of the door frames. None of you shall go out the door until the, of your house until morning. Judgment night. Terrible night. So some of the key points that were read to us just now. The lamb had to be without defect. It could be shared with neighbours, depending on the size of the household. At dusk, a bunch of hyssop was to be taken, and blood from the slain animal smeared on the doorpost and lintel. And then they were not to leave the house again, but remain inside. And while they were inside, they were to eat in haste the very first Passover meal. Roast lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. Hyssop remains an important part of the spiritual life of the Hebrew people. And remember David's cry in Psalm 51. Hundreds of years later, he was aware that the sprinkled blood was God's way of bringing cleansing and healing for sin, transgression. Hyssop was just a common little plant, very commonly growing in the, in the walls, still is in, in the Mediterranean. And there's many references to it in Leviticus and Numbers when the priests would, would use hyssop once the tabernacle and later the temple was built. But really the important thing is not so much the hyssop. The important thing was the blood sacrifice of the lamb. That was what gave protection that night. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I strike the land of Egypt... The death blow will not strike you. And that word Pesach, which is the, the Hebrew word for Passover, it's, it's related to three other words, protect, have mercy, and exempt. And when they got this order from, from Moses as to what was to happen that night, it says that the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So they, it's even before they go into the desert, They're already worshipping in the valley. In the Nile Valley, they're already worshipping. Interestingly, even though Abraham was a great worshipper, he regularly built altars, so did his son, so did his grandson, we actually don't hear of any altars to God being built in, in all the hundreds of years that they were in Egypt. But there's this reference here, that when they hear the story of Passover night, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And you know, worship is empty unless it's accompanied by action. If you don't do it, you're not really worshipping, it's empty. They then went and did as the Lord ordered. That's what they did. And so it was that act of obedience that led to their uh, being delivered. When at midnight, the Lord killed the firstborn. A terrible and awesome night. A night that we know is now celebrated every every year at Passover and it's um, celebrated with joy we talked about joy today it's it's a very joyful celebration now because even though there's an awareness that there had been a tragic event in their past that out of that 
had come this amazing rescue. Out of that had been deliverance from slavery to become a nation under God. And in, um, in the Jewish households, it's actually quite a complicated meal. They have a very big festival. They're into it once a year. They have all these little bits and pieces. They don't actually have a, a living lamb. They don't normally have roast lamb anymore. They just have a bone. They have some nuts and, and wine made into a mortar to remind them of, of the building projects that they used to take part in. They have uh, green uh, bitter herbs as a sign of the, the bitterness of slavery. Then they have another green, which is uh, like um, celery, which is more for uh, fresh life, a new life that's coming to them now. And of course, the egg also speaks of new life. So these, these symbolic things are placed along with glasses of wine, which they drink. But on the first Passover, it was a hurried event. They were standing, they were eating fast, and they were going to be on their way. They were eating meat. They were not going to eat meat for a very long time after this, by the way. Uh, but they were eating meat and uh, ready to head off. But when Jesus came, he also celebrated the Passover. He celebrated every year. And the custom in Jesus' day was to go to the temple in Jerusalem to do that. And, um, and yet, when it came to his la the last Passover before he died, he changed the, the ritual, if you like. He changed the meal. And the one that we are going to be celebrating shortly is not the Jewish Seder, which is still celebrated, except in Messianic households, but something that has changed dramatically so that it's now available to all people of all time. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Christ's blood has been shed, not just for the Jewish people to be rescued from slavery, but all of humanity to be rescued from sin. So every one of us, we're in the global church all around the world today. There'll be millions and millions and millions of people of thousands and thousands of languages who will be sharing in communion just as we are today. Isn't that wonderful to think about that? This feast is a global feast. The church is a global church now. It'll be, it'll be sung and read in many, many, many languages. Christ, our Messiah, has been sacrificed. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we have a responsibility now as we're preparing to come. It takes only a little yeast to leaven a whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old leaven so that you may be a new batch of dough, because in reality you are unleavened. Leaven was... A, was um, a symbol for sin. And they say, why would leaven be a symbol for sin? I think two things they suggest. One is, you only need a little tiny bit, it can spread very quickly all through the bread. And secondly, it puffs up like pride. Whereas what we're going to use today is the unleavened bread, which actually it's, it's, it's a, like a biscuit because um, the supermarket no longer has the Jewish matzah because it's... Um, too late in the year. They, 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 I think that's sold in April. And, you know, it, it will have run out by now. Yeah. So that's why we're using crackers, but they're very similar. So it says here in 1 Corinthians 5, Our Passover lamb, the Messiah, has been sacrificed. So let us celebrate the feast, not with leftover leaven, the leaven of wickedness and evil, but with the bread of purity and truth. Purity is what comes to us through the blood of Jesus. And how is this possible? We ask God to examine our hearts, to shine his light into every corner. 
At Passover, once a year, the Jewish families had spring cleaning, and the custom was that they would clean the house scrupulously, and then the, the father of the house, almost as in fun, would take a feather to remove any remaining little bits of dust. Well, we can now, I think, just spend a little bit of time before the children come in. We'll just ask God to examine our hearts, shine his light into every corner, and it says in, in his word in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I think it's appropriate we just remember that as we come to take this holy feast, and I think that quite recently we had Teresh and Yasmin sharing um, this thought as well. This is a very holy feast. We don't come to it lightly. We come to it with incredible awe and thanksgiving. And isn't it wonderful we don't need to wait for April or some special time for a spring clean? At any time, any time, day or night, we can confess our sins to him, come to him, ask forgiveness, cleansing with his precious blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Now, we're going to suggest that when the children come in, um, I, I wonder if somebody could just go and get the children now. Uh, when the children come in, uh, that we sit in, it's a bit like Passover, sit in either neighborhood groups or family groups. And, and um, Jesus says that he wants us to remember him. This is the time to remember him. And so in our small groups, let's talk with our children about Jesus and what he has done. Let's let, let the focus be on him. Let's thank him for what he's done. And if your children don't understand already, explain what our symbols mean. If they do understand, maybe they can explain to you what they mean. And that would be good as well. But we can all remind each other. And, and any prophetic words that come, let them be words of praise and thanksgiving to Jesus at this time. And later, after the, at the conclusion of the service, if there are things that we still need prayer for, would like prayer for, I do encourage people come to the to the front and we'll pray for people. But right now we're going to focus primarily on, on Jesus and Graham's going to speak. I'm reading from Luke chapter seven. <clears throat> That's sorry, Luke twenty two, verse seven. The day had come for the festival festival of thin bread. It's unleavened bread. And it was time to kill the Passover lambs. So Jesus said to Peter and John, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us to eat. But they asked, Where do you want us to prepare it? Jesus told them, As you go into the city, you will meet a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him into the house and say to the owner, Our teacher wants to know where he can eat the Passover meal with his disciples. The owner will take you upstairs and show you a large room ready for you to use. Prepare the meal there. Peter and John left. They found everything just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When the time came for Jesus and the apostles to eat, he said to them, I have very much wanted to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat another Passover meal until it is finally eaten in God's kingdom. Jesus took a cup of wine in his hands and gave thanks to God. Then he told the apostles, Take this wine and share it with each other. I tell you that I will not drink any more wine until God's kingdom comes. Jesus took some bread in his hands and gave thanks for it. 
he broke the bread and handed it to his disciples. Then he said, This is my body which is given for you. Eat this as a way of remembering me. After the meal, he took another cup of wine in his hands and he said, This is my blood. It is poured out for you and with it God makes his new covenant or agreement. Okay, so we're going to pray uh, for the bread and the wine and then we'll get into our groups. You can come and get your communion and take it into your groups and you can reorganize the church for your groups however you like. So let's, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you that what we're doing today has such an amazing history that we connect with Moses today. We connect with the sacrifice of the Lamb for the forgiveness of sins in ancient Israel. And we even connect with the ancient pharaohs of Egypt as uh, Moses did. And we thank you, Lord, that we are part of your history, that we are inheritors of your purpose for us. We thank you, Lord, that the, that the constant love that you poured out on your people and the deliverance that you brought upon them is still valid today. And we come and thank you, Lord, for the the blood that was poured out when Jesus died on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we are washed, we're made clean, we're forgiven because of the sacrifice of that blood. And we thank you, Lord, for the bread, Jesus' body, given for the forgiveness of our sins. And we praise you, Lord, as you've reminded us today of your faithfulness and your wonderful purposes for us. So we pray, Lord, you'll bless this wine or this drink and you'll bless this bread as well. And bless us as we share. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>